Revelator, tell me who that ran. John the Revelator, tell me who that ran. John the Revelator, tell me who that ran. John the Revelator wrote the book of the seven seas. Who that ran? John the Revelator. Who's that riding? John the Revelator. Tell me who's that writing? John the Revelator wrote the book of the seven seals. You know, God walked out in the cool of the day, called Adam by his name, refused to answer because he's naked and ashamed. So tell me who's that writing? John the Revelator. Tell me who's that writing? John the Revelator, tell me who's that writing? John the Revelator wrote the book of the seven seals. Uh, Howdy, folks. We're back. We're back with book five, part five of uh, Leo Panitch and Sam Gindin's The Rise of Global Capitalism. This section called Rule of Global Capitalism. We're talking now about the moments, the the decades, the crucial last decades of the 20th century when capitalism became instantiated as a global system beyond uh, uh, the American role in it. Because you have the the system as it's being set up in the post-war world it's headquartered in America and, and is in many ways imposed by directly by America. But in these decades, uh, U.S. capital is able to use its leverage against other capital formations and nation states to dictate the terms by which international trade and law are going to operate in a way that is fully American. Uh, and that... leads to the situation we're in now where the American role in global capitalism is now fundamentally in conflict with global capitalism's greater urge, uh, movement towards the deterritorialization. Because America really has at this point, much like capitalism, outweighed its usefulness within the system. Uh, but there's nothing else. There's nowhere else for that power to go. So even though like the the... the American state is the thing all this other stuff rests on, and yet our political class is in the process of uh, destroying itself and destroying the, uh, the legitimacy of the system that props the whole thing up. And that's only possible because we cannot assimilate democratically our decline and our loss of uh, position in global capitalism. Because we never spoke it. It was always a secret. It was always uh, uh, being sublimated into other conversations and other politics. And now so, now we can't face it. It's literally impossible. Uh, So this first chapter nine is called uh, Rule of Law Governing Globalization. Uh, But before... We get into it. I have to do another uh, little digression to begin with here because somebody DM'd me and asked me to go into Keynesianism more because we talk a lot about how Keynesianism is enthroned as sort of the uh, the theory 
that uh, dominates like the economic thinking of the uh, imperial managers of America in the post-war era, and that Keynesianism comes into terminal crisis in the 70s, leading towards neoliberalism after it sort of exhausts itself as a governing ideology. And the question this person had is, is to what degree is it true that Keynesianism came to a point where it could no longer be applied? Or did other factors cause people to just lose faith in the Keynesian solutions uh, that they could have pursued? Uh, and I would say that at, at the end of the day, it's meaningless distinction because what doomed Keynesianism was the fact that it supposed as its basis the notion that there is an overriding interest that can be uh, discovered through democratic deliberative governance that can, at every point, uh, dictate terms, essentially, dictate conditions under which capitalism will operate. Uh, and that is you know, why guys like Keynes could imagine why good liberals could oversee capitalism while knowing that it was at that, at that point, knowing that it had failed because they all lived through the great depression, but thinking that they were putting capitalism on a path to extinction. Keynes used to talk about the rent, the euthanization of the rentier class. He basically said, we have to do what the Soviets are demanding, get rid of class rule. It's not, it has to, they are a barnacle. They're a parasite. They will destroy the whole system. But, the communists say you've got to line them up and shoot them. No, no, no. We can use reform to control the economy, build institutions of like real democracy that can essentially buy out the ruling class so that you know they can keep their relative positions of wealth maybe in the short term, but they have given up the ability to pass on their wealth generationally and dynastically. And that power and wealth is then socialized. Uh, that's the dream. Of Keynesianism. Uh, but and the problem is, is that that was a false and incorrect uh, and intentionally delusional read of the situation. What made Keynesianism work when it did? Oh, look, we don't have to worry about boom and bust. We don't have to worry about the destabilizing destabilizing effects of cyclical downturns like the fucking uh, the neoclassicals, the Hayekens insist we have to, we can stop that from happening completely by, by moving the toggles, keeping us in the straight and narrow between inflation and unemployment. We can, we can fill the bucket with, with uh, federal spending, uh, supply or uh, demand side stimulus uh, that will keep us on an even keel. And by being in an even keel, you legitimize institutions of democracy. And they expand. And therefore, democratic control of the economy increases. But what actually happened is that democratic control of the economy during the period of Keynesian uh, uh, supremacy was dissolved. We've talked about it a million times, with starting with Henry Wallace being replaced on the ticket in '44. To the, uh, the the Republican wave election of '48 and Taft Hartley, uh, the Red Scare. We talked about all this stuff, uh, and, and like that's that's what that's the the stick. The carrot, of course, being you know mass home ownership for for white uh, workers. 
that success, capitalism's success at essentially suborning the state to operate it for it, to operate, legitimize its own institutions, its own interests, uh, like a fucking parasitic larva eating out the insides of an animal without it even knowing it. Uh, So when the crisis came, Keynesianism was at a loss, not necessarily because there wasn't a theoretical thing that Keynesianism could have suggested, but because uh, the constituency for, uh, for any values beyond profit were totally uh, obliterated because at the end of the day, the whip hand is with the profit motive. Everything else is subsidiary to that under capitalism, regardless of uh, the institutions that are governed and that govern capitalism. Uh, in crisis, profit motive becomes the only thing that is protected because it's the only thing that is actually unifying everybody in power. Everybody is aligned along a profit motive, whereas people are discreetly bunched together along ideological and uh, empirical questions. They're all polarized like fucking iron filings around capital, whether they're in government or whether they're in the private, quote unquote, private sector, which is, of course, just the same thing from an institutional structural perspective. We just create these uh, these veils uh, of uh, separation and then perform them. And everyone just believes it because there's no alternative. What the fuck is water? And so that meant that when a crisis comes, there is nobody there to speak for a Keynesian solution because at the end of the day, the system is not governed by uh, a, a, a disinterested notion of the greater good. People within government might imagine themselves to be operating off of those assumptions and they might do their best to uphold them. But their effort is only resonated with the effort of those who are just looking to make money. So that is the failure of Keynesianism. And that is why the MMT thing kind of annoys me because they're insisting, look, we've proven here that money isn't real. And it's like, well, no shit. What does that help us? You're explaining how the system actually operates without the the mystificating mirrors, but Getting people to believe a certain thing is true like that does not make them act. And action is what is necessary now. Like, because the MMT fantasy is that if you get enough people to believe that this is how it works, then that will make them act in a way that redemocratizes our institutions. But that's going to require work at a much more... Uh, uh, confrontational level, a more grassroots level than at the area abstractions of, of monetary theory. And so, yes, like Keynes, Keynesianism was also correct in a narrower sense. Uh, but the thing that makes Keynesianism fail inherently is because embedded in Keynesianism is the same theological belief that undergirds classical liberalism, which is that class rule is an inevitable and natural component of 
life. Not hierarchy in some generic sense, the way that guys like Jordan Peterson bring it. Like, you know, differences in abilities or, or uh, skills, you know, distributed through a population. No. Uh, a rule by class, as in re- people with a specific relationship to production. Nothing having to do with their intrinsic values or abilities. Their position relative to capital is what determines their uh, ascension. And what what the entire liberal tradition accepts and embeds in itself is a secularization of the theory of individual of uh, of um, original sin that permeated Christianity, which was used to prop up feudalism. We cannot socially sustain a belief in, in a risen living God anymore, but we can still believe that the natural world is outside of us and it is governed by rules that we can only obey. And one of those rules, according to the high priests of capitalism since the 1900s, has been that class rule is inherent and inevitable. Uh, And in fact, necessary. Because first you had, Neil, first you had like liberal orthodoxy, post-Protestantism, post-Puritanism in England saying, you know, here's... Here's predestination in, in, in practice. The market is God. What its dictates are is God's will. We must sublimate, submit ourselves to it, which is why they took the gold standard as their religious, um, uh, like their religious sigil. Gold had a uh, abstract natural value that was outside of human uh, uh, values and, and human uh, Measurements, and that is, of course, not true. That is the dilute. That's that is a religious belief, and it's nested on top of the religious belief that class is inevitable because these religious traditions exist in a context of domination, are reproduced by systems of domination. So the people who live within them and then benefit from them, of course, are going to accept those theological conceptions. Marx comes along and says, actually, no, that's all fake. Humans are in charge of everything. What are you fucking talking about? No natural, are you insane? We make values. So that means that that rock is not what's going to determine how much money there is. We determine how much money there is. Only right now, the we is the ruling class, is the capitalist class. It could be that we could be us, all of us, led by the working class. And then we can socially determine where the fucking money goes and what value is and what, 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 what to, to pursue. And that has been, that's the radical, you know, non, uh, that's the radical, like, Anabaptist uh, uh, Christian tradition that got suppressed by mainstream Christianity. The one that says, actually, we're all saved. There is no uh, original sin. We don't need Christ in the form of the market to determine our worth. We can all live in heaven here on earth. And I believe that that if you don't have a utopian horizon like that in your politics somewhere, it doesn't have to actually like come into practical consideration ever. You never have to argue anybody with it because it doesn't matter. It's, 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 it's just part of your identity. Uh, without that, you will eventually drift towards some flavor of authoritarian genocidal fascism, brutality over social uh, civilization, because if you accept Class rule is inevitable. Therefore, capitalist uh, the, the capitalist market uh, is 
in, uh, is God, then if we are being destroyed by the market, as we cannot argue is not happening now, no one can argue that's not happening, no matter what they say, uh, well, then we had it coming, essentially. And the question only becomes, who will suffer first and who will be saved? And who, who, who's, who will be protected? And that is always going to come down to some sort of Schmidian uh, friend-enemy distinction. And that's, that's everybody's politics. At the, uh, if they do not have a belief that there is a human ability to control our destiny. Now, the thing about that gold standard mysticism of the 19th century is that eventually it was no longer sustainable. Because during the 19th century, you saw what it led to. Cyclical uh, collapses, which the Austrians called the real business cycle. And that was no longer sustainable once the economies got big enough and the working class got organized enough, used all of the uh, technology and, and social relationships developed by capitalism to challenge it. Oh, we can't just let the economy collapse every 20 years and then tell everybody tough shit. We didn't find enough gold rocks to fucking help any, to prevent anyone from starving. It's like you can tell people that when they're a scattered bunch of, uh, of yeomen and, and recent immigrants, but once you have like a coordinated uh, working class movement with organs of power like labor unions and, and political parties, oh shit. And the ability to fucking pull a trigger finger, pull, uh, pull a trigger finger and, or, and wield a gun. All of a sudden, you've got to do something. You have to do something. And out of that necessity to find a new modus vivendi for like the theology of capitalism, you get Keynes, who says, okay, actually, it's not a sin to determine the money supply. We can determine the money supply. But when we say we, it has to be central banks. It has to be uh, uh, a capitalist class because they are the ones they're the only ones who have the sufficient information to make decisions of this kind of magnitude. And of course, that assumption rests on the perpetuation of class rule. Like, that's the thing. Like, all the things that, that make this all sadly inevitable uh, are, are, assumed, are the assumed transcendence of these things that we can't even conceive of getting rid of. And so you get central bank independence, and you get... Uh, this new dual mechanism of uh, pressing the button, uh, pressing the, uh, the interest rate button up and down, determining money supply, and basically keeping a steady flow of, of capital that creates a consistent over time, stable conditions of growth, not the wild cycles that had predominated before, which is going to prevent the very revolutionary situation that they're all terrified of. Uh, but again, it was all... That it, it was all premised on colonial super profits and America being the consumer and producer of first result or of, uh, of first and last resort. And when that relationship changes, it had to to accommodate the reality of, of you know, other capitalist economies coming into their own as spokes and nodes in the system. Uh, it wildly destabilized the situation. And the only way to prevent to the reforms that would have had to have happened along the Keynesian road towards euthanization of the rentier class, as they imagined, would have meant direct conflict with capitalism and its, and its manifestation in state power. There were no horses for that by that point. The horses had left the stable 
because of Keynesianism's very success. Now, you've got plenty of people in America who come from, you know, the, the, the populist tradition without a, a, a rooting in materialism, uh, who really do believe, like, absolute fairy stories about America as, like, a transcendent concept. Not, like, do not understand it. Like, even if these things have meaning, it's all socially constructed. They do believe in, like, a transcendent American value. And the Constitution is having transcendent American values. You know, and that's the kind of, like, uh, reactionary populism that emerges when you don't have a, a, a well-organized uh, working class. Uh, and there's plenty of these people who want to end the Fed and go back to the gold standard because they've seen what financialization of the economy has done in the last 30 years. They're horrified by it, rightly. But they also share the same underlying premise as the liberals, which is that class rule is inevitable. And, and in fact, preferable and necessary. But because they're not aware of the way these systems depend on each other, they have a fantasy that is just allowed to persist because it's politically useful to people who will get these idiots to vote for Republicans. Uh, that they could fantasize one day we're going to end the Fed and get rid of, the, uh, of central banking, even though everything that you claim to love about capitalism depends on it. But then the liberals are left sputtering and, 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 and gawking and not knowing what to do either until they all decided, all right, well, you know what? We're, there's nowhere to go. Capitalism is the real God. We can only serve it. And meanwhile, the actual regulators and central bankers, they have no ideology. Even though a bunch of them are like Ayn Rand aficionados and like supposedly hardcore libertarians and, and uh, Friedmanites like uh, Alan Greenspan, they take for granted that the state will be intervening in the economy, uh, that that's the only way to make neoliberalism work. You can't have a financialized speculative economy unless you have guarantees of state intervention to prop up industries and, and um, pump in liquidity when there's a crisis. In fact, what this chapter is about, Chapter 9, Rule of Law Governing Globalization, is the process whereby uh, the U.S. regulatory state went from trying to prevent crises from occurring in the Keynesian sense, you know, intervening to stop an overheating of the market. Now the market depends on overheating. That's the only way that it's like, uh, it's an engine that's really low on gas. It's literally running on fumes. These sort of bu bubbles are the only thing that will keep it moving forward because its engine has been removed. Uh, so that means now you can't prevent crises. The, the, the role of the state is to uh, intervene afterwards in crises. And of course, that gives, uh, in those crises, capital is able to determine the rules for all these countries that had been resisting American capitalism in one way or another all through the 20th century. So the main mechanism that is used uh, to pry open these small, these middle and lower class uh, uh, um, income countries uh, is trade treaties, WTO, the IMF, and specifically, it's part of it is trade treaties like NAFTA, where it's like, you know, groups integrating, but mostly it is bilateral trade treaties. This is it. Like, it's not one big trade network made up of, uh, of like a UN of trade. It is 
individual relationships between the United States government and specific other governments, which, of course, makes sense that that's how it would work if we conceive of global capitalism as this hub-and-spoke situation, which is what it is. Uh, if that's the case, then uh, you're only you're going to have the, the, everything's going to have to be run through Washington. So all these treaties now uh, are put in place, which uh, they operate by first absorbing in the near term all of the dislocation of uh, creating free trade between you know the U.S. And, and a country that's got much lower wage costs uh, by having American uh, employment take the hit, basically, because we could afford to. We had other ways to kind of make it up to people in the short term to make them imagine that, you know, oh, we're not having a tremendous step backward in quality of living. Uh, No, we're still in control of our destiny. Uh, But they use the uh, political threat of protectionism as a leverage point to kind of get these countries to pry open their markets. They were able to go to these countries and say, look, we love free trade, but if we keep getting hammered on this stuff, if you uh, eventually our uh, our voters are going to demand tariffs, or you could open your markets, and we could tell our people, hey, now we get to trade there, and we get to send our stuff to them, uh, and that really helped grease the wheels. Although for the most part, there wasn't a lot of resistance. Like we talk about how this is an imposition on these foreign countries. And it is, it's certainly an imposition on their people. None of whom would have voted for any of this. None of them wanted it. It was not in their best interest in the near or long term. but their ruling classes were unified in their demand for access to U S capital and markets. That was how the, 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 the people who are already rich, already capital holders in these countries, we're going to, in this new competitive framework, be able to make money. It's the only way. Because, again, the, other th- the alternative to this is democratic control of the economy, which runs directly counter to their interests. No. Demoralize the working class, hyper-exploit them, and then be basically uh, the middleman between uh, U.S. capital uh, and your supply of resources and labor. And since... Capitalism is pretty much in the driver's seat politically everywhere. These these people relatively enthusiastically adopt this new trade regime. And uh, what these what's embedded in these treaties are legal structures, legal theories that are marginal things in American jurisprudence aren't even accepted as uh, as legal facts in America, but are now inscribed legally in. Uh, pretty much every governing uh, policy, uh, thanks to the it's being written into these treaties, again, going around democracy, saying, hey, you can't vote to do this. You can't vote to do that to your economy because private property is transcendent of all other uh, rights, which, again, this is a religious thing based on that religious belief and in hierarchy, the need for it and, and uh, its expression through property ownership. And one of the main uh, legal theories here that is imposed in these treaties is the notion of regulatory takings. Now, we'd already seen how uh, a big part of globalizing capitalism was making it so that countries would not expropriate foreign investment. They couldn't just say, the government wouldn't just say, hey, 
uh, that's ours now, that bank's ours now, that, that mine is ours, because that's going to keep capital from coming in if they think they're going to lose it. So you'd already seen a huge decline in expropriation in the 80s as, as these countries were sort of disciplined by their need to access the, the market. Uh, but regulatory takings took that even further and said, actually, uh, not only can you not expropriate, there's always, there always is, the assumption is you can expropriate if you pay like the, 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 the worth of the item which is never going to be worth it for anybody to do because the, the rate is just set too high because it's set by them. They get to say how much a thing is worth. So that means they'll always set it above what you can pay. So practically, you can't expropriate with that rule. But there's, in addition, there's a reading that says any regulation on the economy that you have as a country that might take profits from not even expropriating their actual capital, it might reduce their profits going forward, uh, also has to be compensated for. Because you are taking from their firm through regulation. And this is, like I said, it's a, it's a marginal legal theory that had uh, it, it, its support in American jurisprudence was shockingly, as you'd imagine. It was big during the Gilded Age. Then it went away. It became a fringe doctrine during the, the, great, uh, during the New Deal and post-war era. And then in the 80s, presto, comes back and becomes imposed everywhere as a legal concept. This is a thing that is only present in American law and is now internationalized without anybody voting for it. And what this means is now you've got all these trade networks that are all being uh, regulated with these treaties, and those treaties have to be uh, arbitrated because there will be conflicts. And so the main uh, institutional uh enforcer of this new regulatory regime is the Bank of International Settlement, which arbitrates on a allegedly impartial basis between states and, uh, and corporations, basically. Uh, and, you know, this is classic bourgeois justice, claims to be disinterested, third party, actually made up of U.S. and U.K. lawyers who are fully enmeshed in the revolving door between finance and government service uh, and they dominate what is called the arbitration community, all these arbitrators for these institutions who are all essentially working for U.S. capital and therefore are able to create a corpus of rulings of arbitration that substantially and consistently favors capital against democracy, basically. Now, this newly volatile system still needs... Uh, some sort of regulatory structure because, you know, yes, we're now accepting that uh, huge crashes are going to happen cyclically and that the government's job is going to be to uh, stop the contagion by dumping in liquidity and nothing else. Uh, but if people are going to start speculating wildly, they have to be able to know what where their money is going. And so this uh, risk management uh, assessment, risk, risk assessment becomes what uh, stands in for actual regulation. The only real regulation now is, is that certain securities require a degree of, uh, of uh, like a price, like a uh, assets to to um, price. Basically, they have to have a certain percentage of the money they're lending out in reserve to cover a loss, and they create a sliding scale uh, which grades these uh, these instruments according to how much 
collateral essentially is 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 still in reserve uh, with the institution making it. Uh, or not? Uh, it's not collateral. I'm fucking. It's a ratio, basically, of of money you have to money you're lending out. Margin requirement, uh, and the 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 more the safer they are, the uh, the, the less leverage they are, basically. Uh, and but this and that's set at an international level. But then, wouldn't you know it, the international standard is only applied to small domestic banks in emerging economies. The big multinational conglomerate banks essentially get to regulate themselves. They create a, they, uh, independent rating agencies are created, which are funded directly by the big banks. So they are essentially able, a liquidity cap, thank you. They are essentially able to dictate their, and determine their own rating uh, for their own uh, instruments, which is, of course, we know ended up being uh, disastrous for the housing market in uh, the aughts. Because the 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 issuers of the bonds or of the mortgage-backed securities were buying uh, the rating, but the smaller banks, the uh, the banks in smaller developing countries, they have to uh, they are disciplined by this uh, like actual standard on the international market. This is the two-track justice system that guarantees that. Capital will win, and they will use the American state to enforce that uh, victory over any social formation anywhere, nation state or otherwise. So the other thing that is uh, needed, though, to to uh, pin this whole thing down uh, is a monetary policy that can be depended upon. Uh, because we've talked about how you know the government is uh, the state's role in maintaining capitalism is in determining the money supply, uh, because that is something that cannot be privatized. Private money is impossible. So it is where the private it's the nexus point between our uh, fake division between private and, and public. That's why it's so dicey, and that's why. So many reactionaries are fixated on the gold standard because it removes the, it, it pushes back the abstraction. It's like, this is literally beyond our control. Money comes from how much gold we have. We don't make that. Of course, us deciding that gold is what money is, is the choice. That's what determines the pool. But we get to pretend it's the actual amount of gold that determines it. And there's, and there's this right-wing fixation on it because it resolves that contradiction. Liberals, of course, are more happy to uh, wallow in contradiction uh, and so they're happy to sit there in the nexus, like good Lutherans, uh, between private and public, because they understand that they can't afford the illusion that these things are separate. They just think that it's still natural because they have a deeper transcendent relationship to capital than even sort of the lumpen populist reactionary does. Uh, and so what these countries in these new uh, uh, emerging markets that are now connected to hub and spoke style to the U.S., supply chains and, and, and uh, money markets is uh, central bank independence because we got rid of the gold standard. It's not coming back, but we need an artificial constraint that is not accessible by democracy to determine the money supply. Uh, and what that means is a 
push to demand as part of all the package of uh, structural adjustment regulations and uh, reformations that that go into any creation of a neoliberal economy in these states. Uh, they were going to have to promise basically not to print money if things go bad, to have a central bank tasked with the same thing that the central bank in uh, that the uh, U.S. Federal Reserve is tasked with, lower, keeping inflation low. And so what is presented and pushed as an attempt to create independent social, central banks for all this country is, in effect, actually creating a franchise model where all of these central banks are essentially uh, branch offices of the U.S. Federal Reserve because they will, as policy, as ideology, as theology, uh, follow the dictates of the Federal Reserve. And it is that guarantee uh, that uh, that uh, gives the incentive for capital to start flowing to these countries. Like that was the condition for, many people might not know this, but some of you might not, the condition that the uh, Afrikaner government uh, extracted from Mandela and the ANC to abolish ap apartheid was central bank independence. They needed to assure, assure that if they gave up the reins of democracy, that they would maintain the actual control over the economy. Because if they didn't have that, then there would be an attempt to actually, there would be a, at least a pressure from below to actually democratize the economy, which could not be allowed to happen. And of course, you can, you can even imagine, squint hard enough and see that action as uh, not just grubby self-interest. Because I guarantee you, those scumbag Afrikaners... You get them drunk enough to be like, look, even if they could do it, it won't matter. Because if you try to do it, you'll get crushed. You will be destroyed. Capital will flow out of your country. And you'll never get it back. And you can look at what happened in Zimbabwe in the late 90s, early aughts. For what would have happened in South Africa if they had not accepted its central bank independence. So they could even tell themselves they were doing the right thing, not even just for their faction or for, you know, the white Afrikaners uh, or the white South Africans. All basically all Afrikaners are white. Um, they can imagine I'm saving the country from disaster because if the U.S. is there to fucking uh, punish you, it will. If, if money can flow out of your economy when you try to socialize economic activity, it will. And there's nothing you can do to get it back. That is why Piketty and others have said the only way that you're going to deal with a global inequality or rein in private capital is with international standards, international minimum tax rates. Like uh, global capital controls, basically, to prevent money from just moving around. Because otherwise, every independent nation state, no matter if it's governed by communists or populist reactionaries who are going to fix everything by creating like Herrenvolk democracy, their efforts to socialize the economy will be disciplined out of effectiveness. Same thing happened with Venezuela. And of course, that's what makes it so infuriating when people point to places like Zimbabwe and Venezuela and say, look, this is why socialism doesn't work. And it's like, yes, motherfucker, because 
it is it presents as an existential threat to the system and it initiates a white blood cell attack from outside of it. So this new regime of liberalized economies and, and capital flows, it, it has one big obstacle, and that is government corruption. Now, of course, as we know, the reason that the West isn't corrupt is because the actual corruption is just legalized. We, we, have, we have settled, we've tamed the corruption that we used to have in the 19th century. And the thing is, is that money over time will, uh, will team corruption because people will grow up benefiting from a system and therefore have faith in it and, and desire to see it uh, perpetuated, which they understand is undermined by, by corruption. Corrupt individuals act because they have no faith the system is going to benefit them, which is why in emerging democracies uh, and in, and in uh, crisis-ridden economies, corruption is endemic because there's no reason to trust the system at all. Uh, so by these guys' own lights, none of these systems would actually give the sort of broad-based uh, um, broad uh, prosperity that they were promising if people were corrupt. But the thing is, the only people who are going to go along with gutting their country's economies and destroying every mechanism for democratic accountability of the economy are going to be uh, motivated by money. What else is going to motivate them? They don't have a religious faith in this shit. They haven't been conditioned in it. In the Soviet, in, when, when the Soviet Union fell, the U.S. had this remit. We're going to create a non-corrupt government that is going to dismantle all uh, uh, public ownership and, and watch the uh, standard of living of their fellow citizens collapse down a fucking sewer. Who is going to do that out of noble fucking urges? Who is going to do that out of, uh, out of uh, nobility of the heart? Yeah, a few like totally brainwashed Randian ideologues. But most people are only going to do it if it benefits them in the very near term because they know that they're fucking destroying the fucking foundations of their own uh, social order. They just don't care. And that happened in every fucking country that uh, uh, the struggling and uh, post-communist and, and uh, post-colonial that had to accept these structural adjustments. The only people agreeing to do it in these countries are fucking crooks. And then, oh no, there's no broad-based there's no broad-based prosperity. Of course, you know the neoliberals will talk about oh, reducing poverty uh, in the in the 20th century, all in China, all in the last 30 years, nowhere else, a little bit, but mostly stagnant, if not declining, everywhere else. Oh, that's because of corruption. We didn't want that, but corrupt corrupt officials are the only ones who are going to carry out your policy. So there's this fake charade of imposing anti-corruption measures on these countries, but that's just to get PR to reassure the markets, to pat them on the back and say, your money's safe there. But because, you know, corrupt people are, at the end of the day, uh, di uh, disciplined by the dollar, disciplined by th the deepest pocket, there's no worry that they're going to go against the greater interests of capitalism. And the U.S. actually used anti-corruption as a uh, an excuse for why they did not offer a uh, bailout uh, to Russia when they had a uh, economic crisis in the late 90s uh, along with a bunch of other countries. 
And we'll talk in the, the next chapter talks about it and we'll end talking about Russia uh, and, and why they were different than all the other uh big countries, big crisis countries that got hit in the 90s by financial panics. Uh, but the stated argument was, you're not doing enough uh, anti-corruption, which is hilarious. The only person who would have done what Yeltsin did, sell his country down the river for global capitalism that he could not have believed in, is because he was a fucking drunk, drunk scumbag. Because he was a pirate. That's the only person you're going to get to do that job. Poor Gorbachev, poor pure believer Gorbachev had to go down the chute. He wouldn't have been corrupt, but to tough shit. He wouldn't have done it. He got pushed out to the fucking door because he couldn't recognize the moment. You either had to fight that thing or you had to submit to it. And the only ones fighting were the delusional communists who got shelled out of the Duma by, uh, by Yeltsin in his coup. And everybody that he got on his side, both in the coup and then in the 96 re-election, was bought and paid for by U.S. dollars. And that's why, starting in the late 90s, Russia drifts out of the American orbit because it's just not working. The, the, the benefits aren't accruing to capitalism uh, to, for its perpetuation in the country. So it becomes a gangster state ruled over by an oligarchy because those are the only people who give a shit. What is this person doing? Someone's having a stroke in the stream. Can you get rid of that person? Can you can you delete these? Okay, good. Was that uh, was that Portuguese? It looked like it was Portuguese, but I don't know. Okay, so chapter ten: New Imperial Challenge, Managing Crisis. As we said, they got out of the regulating game. They got out of the crisis aversion game. Now they're firefighters. Global capital systems, uh, central banks, treasury departments exist to pump in liquidity after a crash, prop back things up, keep the fucking drunk staggering around uh, so that you can keep charging his credit card. Because this is crisis mode capitalism. That's all we have left is crisis because we've jettisoned any uh, democratic accountability, control, direction uh, intervention in this thing. So that means it's it's straight into the side of the wall at 100 miles an hour. So as I said, what this we have this new paradigm, uh, disaster capitalism for all. Uh, the system depends on overheating. Then you have this moment to... Uh, intervene from the point of view of, you know, state policy, liquidity, but then with liquidity comes uh, uh, conditions, further liberalizations, further deregulations, further financialization of the economy, necessary now, if you want to get the money. And of course, what's perverse about this, all the crises I'm talking about now, and, and all the crises that have been in the 20th, 21st century since, we talk about them as bailouts and in, in, of, of these countries, right? Like we're going to talk about uh, the bailout of Mexico in 94 and then the Asian crisis. None of that. And then, but then going into the 20th century, 21st century, the, the pigs, none of those bailouts were to the people of those countries. The money did not go into uh, the budgets. The money went to their creditors, 
The money just went to banks. All they did was reduce what they owed on a ledger. Did nothing to actually stimulate the economy at a demand level, which is why they've languished and they continue to languish. The Keynesian response, hey, demand side stimulus is now off the table because we have too much. We have to you can print tons of money. The MMTers are right about that. But where it goes is politically determined and it can only go up. It can only go to the top. It can only go to uh, in the form of liquidity at the top to the finance system. It cannot go everywhere. So in the 90s, uh, that meant that there are 72 crises, significant financial crises, in low- and middle-income countries, which is just blowing the doors off of any of, any of the, the decades after World War II. Uh, and, the, and these were all caused by, the, these busts were all caused by first booms. And those booms came in the form of U.S. Uh, direct private investment to the developed world that went from $170 billion in a year in the late 80s, early 90s to $1.3 trillion a year uh, in the, ni- the mid-90s. And that was all because uh, after taming inflation in the 80s, uh, interest rates in the U.S. were now much lower, which sent money out of the country looking for better return. And uh, these developing countries with their new... Uh, their new trade bilateral trade treaties with America, their new regulatory uh, regimes, their new constraints on capital flight or capital control, they're all very appealing uh, places to invest. But because this is, you know, uh, this is not the sort of grassroots demand stimulation that like builds sustained economic activity, uh, it all goes into a series of bubbles. And then those bubbles end up popping when inevitably something puts a kink in the hose of funding. And in the form of Me- and what happens in Mexico, which is the poster child for structural adjustment in the 80s, they do everything. They're like, thank you, sir, may I have another? And that's because of the PRI. It's because after the Mexican Revolution, this like clientist single party state emerged that got rid of the fear of dictatorship that had dominated uh, Mexican politics in the ninth, in the nineteenth century, by replacing it with this uh, this corporatist model, so this client this client structure is very happy to uh, get U.S. markets, get uh, U.S. funding, uh, get U.S. investment, and so it does everything it's asked of it, and everybody is just patting its head, saying, "Look at Mexico!" And then they sign NAFTA. Look at Mexico; they're being so good. But in the nineties, but in ninety four. Uh, in uh, interest rates go up a little bit and the money spigot goes the other direction and the whole thing fucking collapses. And there's a $30 billion hole thrown in the Mexican, uh, into the peso as, as the pesos flee the country. Uh, and this triggers a treasury and fed bailout of Mexico, 30 billion, as I said, which again, not going to Mexicans, going to their banks, the creditors that supposedly are taking a risk that is what justifies their interest um, and Mexico, uh, of course, accedes to even more structural adjustment in uh, exchange for this money, which sees 
uh, significant destruction of the lower classes uh, of Mexican society. A huge move. With, this with NAFTA leads to essentially the annihilation of the uh, agricultural economy in rural Mexico and takes millions of farmers off the land to find jobs in factories in Mexico or in the United or, or to work in the United States. Uh, of course, you know, this is the context that's always forgotten when talking about immigration, that like, this is not just a bunch of people making independent decisions. This is the result of, and this is, and then, or their moral, like, Oh, they're breaking the law. They're bad people. Uh, it is, uh, it is just a tidal uh, flow caused by, uh, this massive restructuring of the Mexican state that uh, cut subsidy, uh, cut direct per, uh, employment, uh, and also brought in uh, highly subsidized American agricultural products to destroy the margins of independent farmers. But growth, economic growth in Mexico, up, up, up. NAFTA boosts exports. So it's a success. It worked. The next big crisis is uh, in Asia. So in the early 90s, people are saying, look at Mexico. They're doing great. They also, you see people talking about the Asian tigers. These economies in, uh, in, Mex- in uh, Asia, vaguely kind of racist thing to say, you know, hey, look at those, ti- oh, those Asian economies. They're all like tigers. Uh, and it's South Korea, Thailand, and Indonesia. And what's happening here is it's a similar relationship to Japan, these countries have a similar economic relationship to Japan as Mexico does to the United States. You've got a similar situation. Low interest rates in Japan, cheap yen. That means easy credit to loan to, for to, uh, to high-margin speculative investments in specifically Thailand, uh, but also uh, to a lesser extent South Korea and, and in Indonesia. Uh, and then, but of course, again... Creates a bunch of uh, speculative bubbles, including in Thailand, a huge real estate bubble where the army officers who basically run the economy there uh, get in bed with Japanese uh, uh, investors to just build a bunch of housing uh, and hotels and stuff. And then all that has to happen is Japan makes noises about raising their uh, interest rate and the it starts a chain reaction that goes through all, all through Asia. Uh, and the U.S. essentially suborns Japan into playing the same role with those as with Thailand as we played with Mexico. And they didn't want to do it. Uh, but we said, no, like, this is how this works. You are our main uh, client here in East Asia, have been since the war. You are carry out our remit here, which means you're, you have a role as a node with a, nut, with a role related to these other nodes. So Japan and the IMF, uh, they do a bailout of Thailand. Once again, bailing out their, the, the, just giving money to the banks that loaned it to them uh, and in exchange for structural adjustment. Uh, in Indonesia, Suharto, who had been put in power largely by the U.S. in the 60s to stop Indonesia from going communist, killed a million people in the process. Uh, the success story of the Cold War. Bigger, bigger. People talk a lot about Guatemala and Iran. Those were all coups. Uh, those were all you know coups in more sense than one for the CIA. But Indonesia is their crowning jewel. Um, but you know, live by the sword, die by the sword. Like he was a U.S. puppet his entire career. That's 
who we depended on. And uh, when the tide turned, we let him hang, hang out to dry and let him get overthrown uh, and imposed an IMF structural adjustment that devastated the Indonesian economy. Very similar thing happened with uh, in the Congo, Zaire, as it used to be called, with uh, Mobutu, who we put in there to uh, neutralize Lumumba and who by the 90s had been uh, totally delegitimized. Uh, the economic conditions and uh, the war in Rwanda next door fatally destabilized him, and we, we, we sent him packing. And, of course, when we send these guys packing, Marcos, same thing happened in the 80s, we, all, we pat ourselves on the back that, like, yeah, we're, stopping, we're getting rid of dictatorship when we're, we're just we're firing, uh, we're firing an associate who's not working out. Now, Korea has another, has also has a big crisis. What's interesting there is that, you know, even though the Korean working class is as beaten down as any of those, uh, any of any in your, in Asia after World War II, you know, it, it, Korea was ruled by a, a, a right-wing dictatorship during most of the post-war period, and only recently the 80s got in democracy, quote-unquote, uh, was still able to carry off a huge general strike uh, obviously, you know, not one, not the big strike that overthrows the state, but something that certainly rocked people in Korea and seriously uh, spooked potential investors uh, in Korea who were terrified now that uh, the South Korean government was going to come out of control, especially when a left wing activist sort of uh, tangentially associated with the strike was elected president. Uh, and what happens is the same thing we've seen before. Uh, some uh, with meter on guy gets in mandated the Shariza, same thing gets in mandated the people to stand up to capitalism gets the talk understands the real consequences of going against the demands of the IMF and the US government what that would mean for their economy what that would mean for their prospects demo, uh, their democratic prospects and uh, they disciplined their working class they, they accepted a huge job losses. They cut the, their already threadbare safety net uh, because there was no alternative. Um, now, this is this. The Asian market crisis triggers a big crisis in Russia. And here the money stops flowing here. There is no uh, bailout essentially because Russia wouldn't play along with America's demands because they didn't have to, because they actually had independent power in the form of their vast nuclear arsenal. Uh, and that meant that Russia defaulted on their, on their debt. And that really is 98. When you see the breach, because Russia is, is brought in as like a corrupt client state with Yeltsin. Uh, but then by 98, when Putin's getting in there, the cracks are appearing. Uh, and Putin's going to take the U.S. take Russia out of the U.S. orbit because at that point he and the other uh, uh, people in like positions of power in Russia understood that suborning themselves fully to the dictates of American capitalism would lead to the same sort of uh, subservient status that all these other countries had, and they didn't have to accept it. They had an alternative. With all their gas and oil and their fucking missiles, they could take their own path. And they haven't ever since. And we have been punishing them ever since. We've been expanding NATO like crazy. We you know, did brinksmanship. We got the war we wanted. 
in, in Ukraine, we're hoping in the long term to finish the job of buck-breaking Russia. Uh, and they're resisting. But of course, you know, there's people who want to make them into heroes for that. But it is just this sclerotic, corrupt na uh, national bourgeois trying to maintain their power, their narrow control. It is not any kind of resistance to regimes of domination. It is simply a, uh, a decentralized one that they want to maintain control over rather than be turned into total handmaidens of Washington. So there's two sides to this new reg, quote unquote regulatory regime. Uh, and it's uh, these bailouts, this guarantee that if the ship goes, hits the fan, there will be uh, a, a spigot of money to keep liquidity going. Uh, but that <laughs> has to be matched with a new legal regime that accelerates speculation and encourages monopoly capital formation. Uh, because, again, growth now is determined and, uh, by speculation. If you do not have maximum accelerating speculation, you don't have an economy. You don't have capital circulation. And, of course, that's incredibly destabilizing, which is why the bailouts are there. So everybody can keep playing the game and not have to worry that they're going to go off a cliff because the, the, the daddy fed will be there to protect them in their everla everlasting arms. And part of that means the final end to Glass-Steagall, any sort of uh, partition between commercial banking and investment banking. Everybody gets to invest. Everybody gets to uh, have their securities. Everybody gets to have derivatives. It's a derivative revolution, they call it. You get a derivative. You get a derivative. You get a derivative. The more derivatives we make, the more we can circulate the, the uh, uh, capital, the more we can uh, compensate for the decline in actual productivity of the economy, the real one that this is all supposed to be based on. And part of this derivatives revolution is this amazing third-way Clinton triangulation that you've got to actually admire for how elegant it is. So Clinton has, you know, this remit with African-Americans and minorities as part of the Democratic coalition. He wants to they do have like an interest, a actual like narrow political interest in seeing them advanced so that they'll vote for him. Uh, and that means making uh, homeownership accessible to people who were denied a chance to get in on the lottery of the GI Bill in the post-war uh uh, cheap financing, direct financing. Now, there's no more GI Bill. There's none of that. That's all, that's all an extinct political economy. But what we can do is financialize mortgages to facilitate lending. If you allow the creation of these mortgage securities, you minimize the risk of lending money to any specific uh, uh, person, which means people who systemically and structurally have less wealth because they were denied access to wealth, can now have access to credit. And for people who already have a home, uh, they find that thanks to the mortgage interest rate deduction that allows you to deduct uh, the interest you pay on your mortgage, not the actual mortgage, but the interest uh, from your uh, 
from your taxes, it allows you to uh, borrow money against your home's equity at a lower rate than is posted, basically. A special subsidized cheap rate. And then that uh, stimulates consumer spending you know, uh, and compensates for the lack of wage uh, increases. Because remember, wages stopped rising in 1980, basically. Uh, but people have to spend more over time. And so cheap credit for mortgages uh, subsidized by the by this tax code allows for uh, access to the credit that will allow people to, to do that spending. And of course, because they're borrowing it, it means that they are not free, that they're digging their own fucking grave. They're, they're, they're paying for their own prison. But there is no alternative. If you can only express yourself, if you can only express your identity and your uh, spiritual self-conception through consumption, then you have to consume. Uh, and honestly, the most horrifying thing in this chapter, and this is really like a, this is a Lovecraftian realization. Uh, so he, they talk at the end of this chapter about Brooksley Bourne. Anybody who watched like the, the, any of the frontline shows about the, uh, about the crash in 2008, I think she was in a, the, one of the Alex Gibney movies too. Uh, she was the Cassandra uh, who was uh, in the Clinton administration. The regulator who was saying, like, if we stop regulating this stuff, it will blow up. She was telling everybody that. Uh, And Larry Summers and those guys, they all patted her head and told her to go away. And, you know, it was sexism played a role, of course. uh, And they were all bought and paid for Wall Street stooges. But once again, just like with the uh, Afrikaners negotiating the end of apartheid, they had an they had a story to tell themselves that made uh getting rid of regulation, even knowing that it's going to cause a crisis uh, as the smart and only and correct and adult move, because this new economic paradigm, this financialized economy requires maximum flow, which means the lightest amount of friction in transactions. Because again, we're talking about it. That's the only way to keep it, to keep the, uh, acceleration of capital is to have people trading things, slicing things into smaller, smaller tranches and then selling them to each other more and more times. And every regulation, every intervention slows down those transactions. So if you were to actually enforce a regulatory oversight to prevent a crash, you will cause one. It's better to Lean back and let it come naturally. Again, this appeal to a fantasy notion of a of, of a true natural uh, market that reveals the invisible hand of God. That's that's the invisible hand of the market. It's it, whose hand is that? It's God's. And this is where once again we get to the theological basis for this stuff. These are all these are all theologies. It's like that's not. That's why it's banal to even say it, to say something is a theology. Of course it is. All of this is an extension and a, trans, and a materialization of, of theology. The question is, which theology are we going to fucking live by? The one where our separation is eternal and existential? The one where we are hostage to an idiot, psychotic God? Uh, or the one where uh, we are fundamentally connected and that and through connection can uh, come to mutual understanding. 
sufficient to direct our actions. And I think the evidence is we do have that capacity. But that capacity obviates the necessity for class rule in a way that our rulers will simply not allow to happen. I really do think that you need hell. Like, hell exists as a concept to justify class rule. The notion that some are damned and some are saved, that there is like some eternal place of torment or, or reward, that, that, that raises the stakes, right, of life so dramatically that it necessitates structures to enforce codes of behavior and ideas. Because if you don't, you will lose people. But what if there's nothing to lose? Not that there is no heaven. Not that there is no hell. But that we are all saved by virtue of being human. If that's true, then we can make mistakes. And we don't have to rely on alienated institutions to enforce orthodoxy of any kind. But again, that has to come from outside. No system is going to come to it, the realization. Like all those good Keynesianisms, Keynesians in the 60s and 70s, they didn't say, oh, I guess we have to go to war with capitalism now. We thought we could have reform, but it turns out we have to go to war. No, they submitted because they wanted to think they were good people. They wanted to think they were moral and were trying to lead people towards some sort of post-scarcity promised land. But that was all... A delusion. That was all self-talk. They were the handmaidens of capitalism the entire time. And of course, the irony is, is that this insistence on uh, you know patrolling hell, creating creating a uh, a, a system that uh, you know separates the saved from the damned and rewards the saved and, and punishes the damned, which is what we imagine we're creating with our economic systems, whether we're liberals or Democrats. Oh, what's actually happening? You're literally turning earth into hell. Earth is turning into a, I, I hate to use the word, but God damn it. It's one of the best terms coined in the 21st century, a geo hell. And, and anyone, honestly, who cares if the book is gibberish? If anyone knows about GeoHell, uh, the book is gibberish. Who cares? Book schmuck. Being able to uh, encapsulate a concept that uh, pithily is that's a real that's a real uh, achievement, and I salute salute. But yeah, we're turning Earth into hell in our pursuit of heaven. What a joke. What a cosmic joke and a cosmic shame. Mm, that's a cosmic shame. That's a cosmic shame. That's a cosmic shame. Folks, cosmic shame, isn't it? I should rename this that. Ah, never mind. All right. See you guys. So next week, don't know what date yet, but next week we'll do chat. Uh, 
part 11, or I'm sorry, part six, part six, the global capitalist millennium. Yeah, that's right. Welcome to the, the willennium, the 21st century, where it gets real hairy, real quick, and where every fairy tale these people told themselves throughout the 90s gets uh, woken up from, and then new and even more fantastical uh, vehicles for delusion are forged. Bye-bye.